Today we uh, finish the Pentateuch, or the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. If you've struggled simply to read it, uh, and I can sympathize, it can be hard going at times, spare a thought for Jewish children who learn to recite it all by heart. Why? Because they knew that these words were light and truth and hope and instruction and comfort and challenge. And so they celebrated these words that we've been poring over over these last weeks. They talk of the Torah as something to delight in that brings light to their world. If your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. The law is something we can put our trust and our hope in. And I hope over these last few weeks you've come to see why. Because they reveal something amazing, I hope you've seen, of who God is and what he's like. This amazing God who loves extravagantly, back to the covenant with Abraham and the call of Joseph, who rescues supremely from the gods of the age, from Pharaoh, Uh, and his gods in Egypt to the gods of our day, who provides endlessly through the desert, whose words are always trustworthy and true, the God of creation and life and covenant relationship and kingdom responsibility, the God of deliverance and promise, all packed into these first five books of the Bible. And so they treasured these words, the law, the Torah, and Jews around the world still honour these five books, I guess, above all else. And in many ways, we need to learn to love them and honour them anew. Jesus said, I haven't come to abolish or to push away all that. I've simply come to fulfil it. Way back in these early documents of the Scriptures, we have word on word that points to the Jesus who one day would come. And so we treasure those words as indeed we treasure his coming. Next week, then, we will get into the promised land. The week after that, I will go to the promised land, and Claire will take you through judges, and then we'll be on into the the kingdom, ending up in the kingdom of David in a few weeks' time. It's a disappointing end to the Torah, to the Pentateuch that we come to this morning. It's sad and disappointing because we've been consumed and maybe mesmerized, I hope, at times by the love of God, by all that he has done for a people that simply rebelled and could offer nothing back in return. But now in these last chapters, we're forced to turn away from looking at God to look at ourselves. And that's not usually as much fun. Numbers in many ways holds up a mirror and invites us to look at ourselves through the people of Israel and to ask the question, am I like that? Do I live that way? Do I live out of that spirit? So it's not as much fun as the other week's. And if you didn't find the other weeks much fun, then you're ahead this morning, because it's not going to get any better. Let's pray. 
Father, help me, honestly and openly, to hold up the mirror of the book of Numbers and to allow it to say into my life what you put it there to say. Allow it to speak to me today. May I hear your word. You speak not to condemn or to overwhelm. You speak to clarify and to convict that you might rescue me, for you are a saving and rescuing God. Amen. So, let's get underway together then. The book of Numbers. You remember the story? The people have been rescued out of Egypt, but the harder part was to get Egypt out of uh, the people. They walk in the desert for about three months and come to Mount Sinai. Here at Mount Sinai, they spend 12 months, a calendar year, and there God teaches them a new way to live. And we looked at the major themes of that year-long tutorial last week, of which the book of Leviticus is the seminar notes, the slides of the teaching that God offered them during that period of time. So they've been in the desert now for about 15 months, there or thereabouts, and I guess 15 months in the desert is probably long enough for anybody, wouldn't you? And certainly that's what God thought. It was time to leave the desert. The desert place, or the pit, or the prison, as Joseph experienced, is though an important place. It's an important place because of the things that can be achieved in the desert that aren't easily or very easily achieved in other places and at other times. You see, there are things that we learn in the desert that we probably would never learn if we were always in the promised land. Do you know what I mean? There are things that you learn when your back's against the wall, when everything's been stripped away, that are hard to learn, and you probably wouldn't bother if you always lived in the land of milk and honey. The desert is a place of learning. And Isaiah has this wonderful phrase, I'll I'll give you the treasures of darkness, the the riches stored in secret places. God will take you to places that are dark, your back's against the wall, but they can be treasured moments because of what you learn there. They can be uh, treasured moments because of the presence of God that you experience in the desert that you wouldn't have experienced in the promised land because you are forced in the desert to trust him in ways you've never trusted him before. Even though I go through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. And the remarkable testimony of people who sit here this morning and down through the generations is we would look back and we would say, if I had my life again, would I not have gone through that desert place? Many of us say, I would still have gone through the desert place because of what it taught me, because of what I discovered about God, because I found treasures I would have never known had I always been in the promised land. Maybe you're in a hard place right now. And when you're in the hard place, it's a different story, isn't it? When you're in the desert, the only thing you really want to do is to get out. When your back's against the wall, the only thing you really want to happen is to to break out of this situation, this circumstance that is sometimes so overwhelming and so oppressive, you don't know whether you can breathe another day through all that you're facing. How much longer, maybe, you cry, 
to God. Where is the way out of this desert place? What if God has a different question? And it's not an easy question. I said it wouldn't be fun. God's question might be different. What if God's question was, have you learnt what you need to learn in the place where you are now? Now I understand, depending on your circumstances, that can sound really quite harsh. But remember, this is the God who loves you. This is the God who has already rescued you and saved you. This is a God who's made a way for you, despite the ugliness and the horror of your sin, to know him and to be at peace with him. This is the God of gentleness and grace, but with clear intent, with the love in his heart, might say, have you learnt what I long for you to learn in this place so we can move on to a different place? What keeps us in the prison, the pit, or the desert so often is in our circumstances. We look at the circumstances and we blame them for keeping us there. Joseph could have blamed the prison guard and Potiphar and Pharaoh and everybody else for keeping him there in that prison. But he went from prison to palace in how long? One day. Once he'd learnt what he was there to learn. Do you remember that? He went from, I'll sort that dream out, to, I cannot do it. But God can give you the interpretation of the... uh, That was it. Suddenly he went from being at the centre of his world to having God in that place, and he broke out of the prison, the desert, in a single day. Have you learned what you need to learn in the place where you are now? So the Israelites were 11 days to the promised land. That's all. By the way, rugby's an overrated sport, isn't it? You know, I don't understand why people get all into it. It's ridiculous. So there are 11 days. That's all. 15 months, 11 days to go. We're out of here, chaps. And that's how the book of Numbers starts. It's all really rather upbeat and they're getting ready to get on their way. So just a quick uh, overview that brings us up to the the passage that Barbara read for us. They're getting ready. Chapters 1 to 4 is about the people getting ready. They take a census. They prepare an army. They work out who's going to stand where. How are they going to walk these 11 days into the promised land? Who are the fighting men? Do we have everybody? This is how we're going to move. The second part of getting ready was all to do with the the tabernacle. If we're going to move, God's presence always moves with us. What did it mean to organize the tabernacle as they moved? And they got all that in place. So 1 to 9, they're getting ready. And to be honest, honest, it's all lively and upbeat, and then the moment they've always been waiting for, verse 11 of Numbers chapter 10, on the 20th day of the second month of the second year, the cloud lifted from the tabernacle, they were on the move. They waited and longed for that moment when God would show by the the pillar of cloud that they were on the move. Where were they going? Well, Moses explains where they're going. And Moses said, we're setting out for the place about which the Lord said, I will give it to you. Come with us and we'll treat you well. The Lord has promised good things to Israel. In a couple of weeks, 
We'll be home. Eleven days. They're packing up. They're packing their tents up. The, the cloud is hovering over the tent. We're on our way. It was like a, a big, massive march for Jesus. And it says that they sang every day uh, uh, praise to God about his enemies being scattered, about God leading them and God giving them victory and, and so on. But then something relatively small, just within a stone's throw of the promised land, something relatively small became a telltale sign that all was not well with them. That they were not as ready as they thought, that the lessons of the desert maybe had not been learnt. A worrying sign. Chapter 11, verse 1. Now the people complained about their hardships in the hearing of the Lord. Talk about an inappropriate time to complain. They can almost see the promised land. It's almost there. They've been in the desert for 15 months. They can see it. They're walking towards it. I know. Let's have a pity party, shall we? Yeah, what a great idea. And they start to complain amongst themselves. They begin to make a fuss that everything isn't quite as they would like it to be. And they nurtured each other's self-obsession that it wasn't quite exactly as they wanted it to be. And as we read it, we realize how outrageous it is. Until perhaps we look in the mirror that Numbers provides and see ourselves consumed by trivia, related to our own comfort and consumerism, consumed by our own prejudices and preferences when we're within yards of moving into all that God would have for us. And we hold a pity party when the world is lost and on its way to hell. How often instead of entering the promised land, how often instead of claiming the ground that God is calling us to claim, do we decide it would be better to send out invitations to a party when we would just simply encourage one another in all the things that are not quite right? Come to my party. Yeah, I'm coming. And very quickly, this party invitation gathered momentum. And, and, and it's just the same. Down through the ages, if there's anything Christians could have had a pity party about, then they've been there and done it, don't you think? doesn't matter what it is. Google something about Christians, and they'll be disagreeing. They'll be moaning. They'll be grumbling. They'll be saying, well, this is not quite how I want it to be. It's a worrying sign. And so easily it becomes a spirit by which people live. So uh, a few verses later, they're, they're, they're complaining away. They, they turn to meat. Well, we, we've had, we've had uh, a manna. We're fed up with manna. Let's have some meat. Just hang on. We've just got a few days to go, chaps. Stick it out, Kentucky, in the promised land. You can make it another ten days. Oh, no, no, we're not moving an inch now until we get some meat. Verse 20, God says, I'll give you meat until you puke. It's there. I'm just teaching the Bible. He's so fed up with them. So chapter 13, we enter with this question that maybe the lessons of the desert had not been learnt at all. And in chapter 13, there's a test. God decides he's going to test the people to help him see their true heart know. God will test the people to help them, a mirror, to help them see their true heart. 
The Bible talks about this test in Hebrews. Hebrews chapter uh, 3 and verse 8. Do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion during the time of testing in the desert. Chapter 13 is a test when he sends out the 12 spies. And the question that Numbers asks of the first Israelites is, will they pass the test? The question that it asks us to ask of ourselves is, would you, would I have passed the test had I been there in the desert? Or maybe a better question still, are you passing the test today, showing your readiness to enter your promised land. So you know the story, and we'll recap it very quickly. Uh, Numbers 13, you might want to have it open in uh, front of you there. Uh, The Lord said, go and explore the land which I am giving uh, to the Israelites from each ancestral tribe, send one of its leaders. So, there's the verse, very clear from God. Was God sending them to spy at the land to see if they were able to conquer it? No. No. Send some men to explore the land together, which I am giving to the Israelites. Was there any doubt that the land would be theirs in God's offer? No. So they go into the land... They come back carrying a cluster of grapes. We'll say something about that in a minute. And then verse 27, they give their report. They gave Moses this account. We went into the land to which you sent us, and it does flow with milk and honey. Here is its fruit. What are they essentially saying? They're saying, do you know what? God is right. It's it's a great land. Well, I never would have believed it. God was right. He knew all along. It really is a land, just as he said, flowing with milk and honey. They should have stopped there. But you know what? They went on to say, God is wrong. We cannot live there. Because we've seen the people. They're large and their cities are fortified. Nobody had asked them to assess the viability of them taking over the land. But they, in good people of God tradition, thought they'd give God a little bit of advice. And we can't do it. You're right, it's a fab land, but you're wrong. It's not ours. Not everyone. Caleb and Joshua said something different. Then Caleb, verse 30, silenced the people before Moses and said, we should go up, you know, and take possession of the land, for we can certainly do it. Anyway, the news of the majority carries and uh, the whole camp starts to grumble in chapter 14. Caleb and Joshua then plead to the people that that God is with them and they can certainly take the land and the people say, now, why don't we stone you while we're at it? Seemed fair enough to me. God's reply then, verse 20 of chapter 14, is really important. The Lord replied, to Moses, who was saying, Lord, don't be too harsh on these people. And God said to Moses, I have forgiven them. God's verdict was that he would forgive the rebellion in their hearts that said God was wrong. He would forgive. Nevertheless, they will not enter the land. They will die in the desert. 
And you can understand the impossibility of taking an unbelieving generation into a land that was designed to be filled with faith. And God said, I have forgiven you. I won't hold this against you ultimately, but I can't give you the land. You haven't learnt the lesson. When the pressure is on, you turn away from me. But it's really important to understand this, I think. Because we can be Christians today, and we can know that our sins are forgiven. We can know that we have a place in the book of life. We can know that heaven's gates will one day open for us. We can know that come what may, we will always belong to God, but still in this life die in the desert. They had failed the test. And they would stay in the desert for 38 years to travel what should have taken them just 11 days. Would God still be with them? Yes, absolutely. Grace-filled. Would God still provide for them every day? Absolutely grace-filled. Would they see God powerfully at work through those 38 years? Yes, absolutely grace-filled. Would they enter the promised land? No. All except Caleb and Joshua. Because they had a different spirit. A different spirit. And we can live like the Israelites... We can know that our sins are forgiven. We can know that God is with us. We can even see God working powerfully in our lives. He is that gracious. But still because of our unbelief, still because of our lack of trusting his word, we find ourselves living not in the promised land, but remaining in the desert. We need a different spirit. The book of Hebrews puts it like this, describing that different spirit. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion during the time of testing in the desert. See, it's about our hearts. Is my heart open or closed to what God wants to do? Is my heart soft or hard towards what God is asking of me. You see, Paul in the New Testament makes this very point. He says, do you know, we're we're all like the people of Israel. I don't want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers, that our forefathers were all under the cloud and that they all passed through the sea. And it goes on. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual fruit and drank the same spiritual drink. In other words, they really were God's people. God was going to protect them. He was going to provide for them. He was going to look after them. All the things God will always do. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them and their bodies were scattered over the desert. You see, they they had it all. In our context, they were church members. They were even trustees. They were small group leaders. They, they came to all the big do's. They were in all the right places. They knew God's presence. They even knew that God had forgiven their sin. They even seemed him work, working powerfully. Nevertheless, says Paul, these things are written down as examples. Warnings on those who are to come, that's you and me, because if you think you're standing firm, I know God's presence. I've known my sins forgiven. I've seen him do powerful things. If you think you're standing firm, be careful. Because they thought they were standing firm. And they died in the desert. 
You see, you can be a Christian and know all that stuff. You can know God and his power at work in your life and still not trust him to take you into the next place. So, would I have passed the test? Do I have a different spirit? That's the question. What kind of spirit am I living out of? Would I have been with Caleb or would I have been with the majority? Where where would you have been? What kind of spirit are you living out of? And I've got four questions really quickly that just help each of us think about the kind of spirit we might be living out of. It's an indication of where our hearts are before God. Are they soft or hard? Are they open or closed? You see, the first question is, grumpy or grateful? Grumpy or grateful? This is serious. It's not grumpy old men. This is a choice that we make as we live. Are we grumpy or grateful? It's not just about going through a hard time and for a moment losing perspective. But in your life, do you live with a grateful heart? Because that gratitude is a sign of a different spirit. Do you live with a grateful heart? That night, all the people of the community raised their voices and wept aloud. All the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron and the whole assembly. If only we had died in Egypt or in this desert. You see, not living with a grateful heart takes you to ridiculous places. Within moments, their ingratitude led them to say these most absurd things. No, we would have been better off in Egypt, chaps. It would have been much better if we'd missed out on the greatest deliverance God had ever achieved that's still being celebrated thousands of years later. Egypt was such fun, everybody, when they were treated harshly and cruelly. Better we died in the desert and never make it. Ingratitude takes you to a ridiculous place and closes your heart to what God longs to do. I'm amazed by this, really. Caleb and Joshua say, come on, chaps. It's not that bad. Look how big the Lord is. We can take this land. And the people who are grumbling, the people with ingratitude say, I know what, let's stone them. Simply for saying we can do it. But that's that's where ingratitude takes you. As you grab and become threatened and become closed and become hard. It becomes ugly and demanding. I don't really enjoy this house that God has given me because I deserve a better one. And I don't really enjoy this job because I I really want that job. And I I don't really enjoy these holidays because I should have those kinds of holidays. And, And I don't love my spouse as much as I should because she should be more like this or he should be more like that. That's the kind of spouse I deserve. And from being grateful and open, we become ungrateful and closed. Let's stone them. Seems reasonable to me. As soon as they started to live out their ungratefulness, they were in trouble. And so the New Testament says time and time again, Paul says, I've learnt the secret of being content, of being grateful for all that I have, for all that God has given. And then there are these summary verses in Ephesians and in Colossians. And each time they, they describe the kind of life the believer should live. One with a thankful 
hearts. Because God has done so, so much. How thankful are you? And back to Numbers that holds up this mirror. God says, if you live with ingratitude, if you live grumpy rather than grateful, you show contempt. Seems a bit harsh, doesn't it? God says, if you live like that, it's like you're saying my provision is not good enough. You're not satisfied with what I'll give you and where I'll lead you. Suddenly we realize what an affront to God it becomes. Secondly, large or little, or little or large, uh, whichever way around you would like it to be. Other things in your life today, little or large? Most of us will say, I've got some things in my life that are quite large, actually. Caleb had a different spirit. It wasn't that he didn't see the reality of what was in the land, but he saw something, someone, who was always so much larger. And so the things of life were little because God himself was large. Do you live with that perspective? There are giants in the land, but is your God bigger, stronger, greater? And so Caleb all the time is is appealing. He's saying, look, the Lord is pleased. He will do it. The Lord can do this. L-O-R-D, capital Yahweh, the God of heaven and earth, the God we can trust, the God who always keeps his promises, the God more powerful than any other God. That was the focus. Third question. Fear or faith? What's the dominant emotion that you live by? Fear or faith? It's an indication of the kind of spirit that we're living out of. Open or closed? Soft or hard hearts? And following on from that is another one. In your life, do you tend to hinder or help others' faith? Faith is such a fragile thing, isn't it? that needs to be nurtured and watered and encouraged. And just like a flower, with one stamp of your foot, you can snuff it out. Very easy. Do you find yourself sometimes, because you're living out of fear rather than faith, that you don't nurture the faith of others? Your words and your attitudes are more likely to snuff it out than to fan it into flame. And that's what they did. You see, they lived out of fear and they spread a bad report. It was one thing that ten of them came back and said, we can't do it, but they fed that through the whole community and it's dead easy to spread that kind of news, isn't it? You try building faith through a community. You can spend years doing that and that can be destroyed in an instant by the attitudes and words of others. Do you hinder or help? What kind of spirit are you living out of? And finally... Without or with? Without God or with God? Amazing. At the end of all of this, the people are gutted they're not going to get into the promised land. They wake up the next morning and they say, yep, you're right, we have sinned, never mind, we're going to go in ourselves. Do you sometimes live out of that spirit? I'm going to do this myself. Would I have passed the test? Would I have passed the test? Jesus says, if you ask the Father, he will give you as a gift a different spirit. A different spirit. 
how much more will the Father give you the Holy Spirit to those who ask? Coming to the end of the Pentateuch, so perhaps maybe for the last time. Grace notes, did you notice the rock that was hit? The Bible says that the rock was Jesus who provided water, a sign of Christ who provided water in the desert. When they hit it, when he was crushed and beaten, he provides life to the world. Amazing image. Did you see the serpent that was lifted up? The people were suffering under the judgment of their own sin and they cried out to God and God said, put a serpent on a pole and every time you look to that serpent after a venomous bite, you will be healed. And so they looked and they were healed. And the Bible says, uh, or Jesus in fact says, when he's talking to Nicodemus, he says, you know what, that serpent way back in the desert, that was like a picture of me. When people look to me, they can be healed from the venomous judgment that comes from their own sin. And you think, that's weird, isn't it? Why, if God wanted to depict Christ, would he put a serpent on a bronze pole? What did the serpent stand for? Sorry? Satan, evil, judgment, all of that. Well, that's it. When God was on the pole, he became sin for us. The judgment of God for us. Did you see the vine that divided the people? They came back with big grapes, didn't they? Notice that the Bible says it was the first fruits. The Bible talks about Jesus being the first fruits. Jesus said, I am the true vine. There's an image here about Jesus being taken from the promised land as the first fruit of the new thing that God was going to do. But it divided the people. Most of them said, we don't believe it. And a few said, yeah, we're going to go into the land. And exactly the same thing happened with Jesus. Most people say, we don't believe that he is who he says he is. We don't believe it. And some believed. And he gave them the right to become children of God. And uh, there are many scriptures that we could think of about that division between the people. And lastly, the rod that sprouted. There was confusion about who should be the true high priest. So they got all the leaders of the tribes together and they put a dead branch, essentially, in the tabernacle. And then the next day, Moses goes in and one dead branch has sprouted almonds, has sprouted new fruit. And the Bible says very clearly in Peter's first sermon that God showed that he'd chosen Jesus by bringing new life out of someone who was dead. God who was, Jesus who was dead, raised to life. Way back in Numbers, it begins to talk about the resurrection, the new life that comes when God chooses something that is dead. So live by a different spirit, because we have a high priest who's already gone through uh, the heavens. Let's pray together as we begin to gather around the Lord's table and share in bread and wine.